Well, now we're going to have our main Bible reading. And this morning, we're doing the second part of Romans chapter 1. Last week, we read from 1 to 17. Today, we're going to pick it up from verse 18 and read to the end. It says this. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world, in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honour him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonouring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator, who's blessed forever. Amen. For this reason God gave them up to dishonourable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women, and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men, and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind, to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They're gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Well, in a minute we're going to have a look at that passage. But before we do, there's just a couple of things to mention. The first is that there'll be an opportunity to ask questions or make comments in light of the things that we'll be thinking about this morning. So that'll all take place in the live chat. So I will explain how that works when we get to it. So that's question time. There's also a sermon outline and that should be found in your description box. You can download that and use it if it's helpful. And then finally, and most importantly, we're gonna ask God to help us. Let's pray. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. We pray, Lord, as we look at the creation around us, we see your mighty acts, that we would appreciate that through them we see your divine attributes, and they're plain for us all to see. And given that you have sent your Son to die on our behalf, and you've given us the chance to be redeemed and part of your people, may we not make the same mistakes of those before us 
who have failed to give you the glory as the creator of all things. Amen. There's a particular type of film of the sci-fi genre that always ends in the same way. Aliens have come to take over the earth and humanity has to take a stand. But these films don't always end with a battle. Sometimes they end with a speech. In the speech, a human representative explains why the alien shouldn't or couldn't defeat the human spirit. It can be a very optimistic genre, while at other times, sometimes, it's very realistic. Humans are not perfect, but the human spirit means they never give up. One such example of this is found in the 2013 film The World's End, written by Simon Pegg and Edgar Wright. Simon Pegg plays Gary King, who is an immature alcoholic who has reunited his childhood friends to attempt one last time the pub crawl they never finished as teenagers only to discover their hometown is being invaded by aliens and the residents being replaced by androids. At the end of the film, Gary is given the option of becoming an android, a request or an opportunity that he doesn't take up. As discussion takes place between the network, the invading alien, and Gary King, things begin to unfold. Allow me to read just a few extracts of this discussion. So we start with the network, and it. So the network says, Then you've made your choice, Gary, King of the Humans. To which Gary King replies, Yeah, I have, because frankly, who are you to come down here and tell us what to do? The network says, you are children, you require guidance. There is no room for imperfection. Gary King says, hey, Earth isn't perfect, all right, and humans aren't perfect, and guess what? I ain't perfect. The network says, therein lies the necessity for this intervention. Should the galaxy be subjected to an entire planet of people like you. Gary King says, I think you bit off more than you can chew with Earth, mate. And then Andy, who's Gary's friend, chips in and says, yes, because we're more belligerent, more stubborn, and more idiotic than you can possibly imagine. And I'm not just talking about Gary. Gary King says, why don't you get back into your rocket and go back to Legoland? To which the network says, it's our duty to challenge you. Gary King says, just leave us to our own devices. The network says, you misunderstand. 
Shut up, Gary King says. Nobody's listening. Face it, we're the human race and we don't like being told what to do. The network asks, just what is it you want to do? To which Gary King says, we want to be free, we want to get loaded and we want to have a good time and that's what we're going to do. The network giving up says, it's pointless arguing with you. You will be left to your own devices. Surprise, Gary King says, really? Yes. Now, hopefully that's set the scene and give you some idea of what's going on in the discussion. My question is, who is Simon Pegg, or Gary King, arguing with? Now, I know in the context of the film, he's arguing with the supposed commander of an alien invasion. But where has Simon Pegg got his inspiration from for this kind of argument? Could this argument betray more than Simon Pegg is willing to concede? Who are you to tell us what to do? Just leave us to our own devices. Shut up. No one's listening. Face it with a human race. We don't like being told what to do. Well, last week in Romans 1, we saw that the righteousness of God is revealed. And this revelation of God's righteousness is all tied up with the proclamation that God has made Jesus Christ his king. And for everyone who believes, there is salvation. But this coming does have further implications. If God's righteousness is now revealed... If salvation is now available for all who believe, then the implications for those that do not believe are all the more deserved. You see, to reject God's salvation means God's wrath is all that is left. Because with the revelation of God's righteousness comes with it the revelation of God's wrath. And the question that Paul will tease out over the next few chapters is just how far reaching is God's wrath? <clears throat> so where do we expect Paul to start? Where would we begin? Or more pertinent to question, where have we seen others start before it's a question that's in the same region as the question why does god deserve our worship now i'm sure we're familiar with the approach that begins with redemption so a conversation might go something like this and so jesus dies in our place so we should worship him as lord why should I worship him? Because he died for you. I didn't ask him to die for me. 
but he's given you salvation. Just because the fireman saves me from a burning building, it doesn't imply I ought to worship him. Notice how this approach becomes a little problematic. Fortunately, this isn't where Paul begins. God has made himself known in that he created the world. And the whole of his creation reflects his character. Paul explains that God is creator is plain for all to see so that they have no excuse. They can see the very thing that is before them. The magnificence of creation should cause the whole of humanity to raise their eyes up in worship of the creator. So why should we worship God? Because he made everything. But the worship of God isn't what happens. Instead of attributing creation to the creator, humanity worships gods that resemble parts of creation. It's a highly culpable position to find ourselves in, attributing the work of the creator to the creatures that he has brought into existence. It's a great insult to the power of God to attribute to deaf and dumb images his power. Now you might ask, is this really what our contemporary society does? Are we quite far removed from the worship of idols? What's in, been interesting during the pandemic is how often Mother Nature has come up in the narrative of the pandemic. You get comments like Mother Nature is responsible for Covid or the pandemic can be portrayed as a battle against Mother Nature. On many occasions it's almost like this is just a passing comment, slightly floundering when pushed people need to reach for a cause and that cause is found in the personification of nature. But there are other times when things are made a little more explicit. So back in March 2020, Sarah Ferguson tweeted this. Mother Nature has sent us to our rooms like the spoilt children we are. She gave us time and she gave us warning. She was so patient with us. She gave us fire and floods. She tried to warn us, but in the end, she took back control. What's interesting from this quote is just how closely this exemplifies what we see written in Romans 1, 18 to 32. Humanity is at odds with its creator. 
But in order to suppress the truth, instead of attributing the creator with his glory, his glory is attributed to creation, in this case, to Mother Earth. It also betrays the fact that people have a truth to suppress. Humanity cannot get beyond the fact that they've been made in the image of God. And it's this sense of deity that they deny by attributing the divinity to part of the creation. However, by attributing the creation with God's glory, it means humanity can remain in control. The very thing that we desire, which causes us to suppress the truth about the creator we all have. And God's wrath is revealed by giving us what we want. It's interesting that God's judgment for our sin is giving us further over to our sin. What we want, we may think, is the best for us. What our hearts desire, we may confuse for being what we need. And yet, in reality, what's best for us begins with our relationship as creature with the one who's brought us into existence and sustains us. Made by God, in his image, to have a relationship with him, what we need as creatures is to acknowledge and give glory to our creator. And yet our response is to serve the creature rather than the creator. And God's response is to give us exactly what we want. In fact, this is how God's wrath is revealed. God hands people over to an ever-increasing cycle of sin. And so we're beginning to see in Romans that God's righteousness has been revealed, the gospel of Jesus Christ is proclaimed, and everyone who would believe can be saved. But along with this, God's wrath is now revealed. And that is a global problem. The glory of the creator is attributed to creation and God hands people over to the further consequences of their hostility towards him. So we return to the question we began with. Who is Simon Pegg arguing with? In the context of the film, it's an alien force that wishes to bring about the world's end. But what's intriguing is the argument that Gary King uses bears some resemblance to the thought process of Romans 1, 18-32. The author attributes divine powers to the alien life force. 
Gary King admits humans are not perfect. But that actually this is an admirable position to hold. Because ultimately humans don't want to be told what to do. They want to be left to their own devices. Which is precisely what the alien life force allows Gary King and his friends to do. In one respect, the, the similarities are remarkable. The account appears to be an intriguing example of humanity betraying the truth that they're simultaneously attempting to suppress. Gary King makes his case against the God who exists by portraying him as an alien life form who imposes his position on a rebellious human race. That rather than be told what to do, would rather continue to wallow in their own sin. We live in a society that rejects the idea that God has created the world. And the desire of our society truly is to please oneself without restriction. Many Christians can think that in this context it's God who has lost control and therefore the prayer that they pray is for him to take back control. But we've misunderstood. Far from God losing control, what we're actually seeing is God's wrath being revealed against humanity. Having refused to give glory to the Creator, he gives them the futile leaves, lives they desire. They don't believe in the God they refuse to give the glory to. And yet they have to spend an awful lot of energy persuading themselves that he doesn't exist. So, let's pray that God is patient with our world and gives eyes to see and ears to hear. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, in a world where your righteousness has now been revealed and is available to all, to those who believe for their salvation, we pray, Lord, that when, as your wrath is revealed alongside that, it would cause people to wake up and see that all is not right in the world. That they would have eyes to ear, see and ears to hear, so that they might understand, that they might see that you see what's plain before them, that you are the creator and you deserve the glory. We pray, Lord, that they might be moved to repentance as your gospel continues going out into the world. Amen. Well, I mentioned a moment ago, or the start, that we would be having questions at the end of the sermon. That point has now arrived, so this is how things work. So I'll basically, if you want to ask a question, you can put a queue in the live chat. The only reason for that really is just so that we know there's a question on its way. 
and it just prevents us from moving on to the next bit of the service. And then that just means that it gives you the chance to formulate your question and to type it uh, without the sort of rush of trying to get in there before we move on. So if you've got a question about what we've been talking about this morning, maybe something to clarify what we've said, or think a bit further into what we've been thinking about, or maybe if you thought of something off the back of what we've been talking about, then feel free to share it, uh, stick it in the live chat. Okay, excellent, we've got a question coming from Rachel. As we wait for Rachel's question, do feel free to get your own in. Uh, feel free to stick a cue in if you've got one you'd like to ask as well. Okay, we've got another question coming in from Susie as well. Rachel says, verse 28, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. Does this mean that they are past the point of salvation and have no chance of repenting? So the answer is no. <laughs> um, I'm just now wondering how to explain that. So... Interesting. I guess the, the yeah. Okay. So here we go. So as we go through Romans one eighteen and work our way through to chapter three, the development that we're going to see is that God is beginning in terms of talking about humanity, and you might say the Gentiles. And then he's going to work towards the Jews. And the whole picture is that everyone, everyone is under God's sin, uh, is under God's judgment. So there's no exception. That's the kind of question we sort of teased out at the start. How far reaching is uh, God's wrath? And the answer to that is it's completely far reaching. It's a problem for the whole. It's a global problem. It's a problem for the whole of humanity which is ultimately the conclusion so that's the direction in which Paul's going and that's what he's setting out here so in one sense who is under God's judgment just to slightly rephrase things the answer to that question is the whole of humanity at this point you could say, as all humanity looks at the world, they can see God's divine attributes. But what they do is they attribute that to the creation. Now we can say, Jews do that as well. That is, in one sense here, we're looking at not special revelation, but natural revelation. And that's available to the people of Israel as well as it is to the Gentiles. So in one sense, there is an inclusive nature to it. All humanity can see the creation, but instead of worshipping the creator, they serve idols. And you see it exemplified in the golden calf. And 
because they would rather do this than give God the glory, there's a ever-increasing sense in that he gives them over to what they want. So what we're beginning to see is that that's the scene that's being set and included in that group later on as we come, as we tease out more in chapter 2, the, um, the people of Israel will be included as well. They too, despite having God's law, um, are, out, uh, are at odds with God. And it's then only once that that continues to develop that it will be then introduced the idea that salvation's now here so that's why the answer to the question is no because this is not humanity have got to the point where salvation is no longer available to them but rather the state of the whole of humanity is that they're in need of salvation. And I guess one of the things we've been teasing out is, now that salvation's arrived, people are going to be all the more culpable if they don't accept that salvation, but reject it. But now is the time for repentance. Now is the time for repentance. Obviously, if we die or Jesus returns, that time comes to an end. So I hope that makes sense. The idea is not that they're coming to a point where they're beyond salvation, but rather more the comprehensiveness of sin that the whole of humanity is under but now salvation's come okay question from Susie how do we best understand verse 23 today we don't often come across people worshipping actual images of man birds animals etc idolatry seems less obvious more subtle to spot or expose today Thank you. Okay, <clears throat> let me just read verse 23 just for the sake of completeness. Well, I'll read from verse 22. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So, let's see. Yes, so... Um, Susie's then put, I suppose you answered this in the example of Mother Nature. So yeah, the Mother Nature is an example of it. I mean, ultimately, the Mother Nature takes us back to um, a Greek goddess. So in one sense, a little bit embarrassing, I think, that we've held on to that. Because it's widely accepted that the Greek gods don't ex exist. You know, so why are we why when we i mean the very reason that we go back to that actually just proves that we're looking for this person who is responsible or this person who's involved or you know where do we assert those divine attributes 
I guess I guess there's a few things to say with regards to idols. Um, obviously, with our society, there are no idols. There are places in other parts of the world where idolatry is still, or people still worship idols in a literal sense, but not here. But one of the things that we've talked about in the past is how idolatry works in the sense that before you make the idol, you have to conceive of the idol. So you have to start to think, right, the idol that I wish to make and therefore worship is going to look like this, is going to behave like this, is going to have the powers, have these powers. And so in your mind, you're conceiving of the idol that you wish to serve. Now that's quite interesting because you've got this idea that you are making your God in the image that you would have them to be. Which kind of sounds familiar. But it's the other way around. God makes his people, or makes people, in his image. So there's that sense in that you've got things topsy-turvy. But we still haven't answered the question. The reason why we mention about this whole idols are conceived in the mind is the fact that ultimately... You do not need a bronze statue to be an idol worshipper. So, if uh, one of the things that went back when I was at university many, many moons ago, people used to say to me, "Oh, I like to think of God as a as a force in the air or a electrical energy that's about us." Now, they had no idol, they had no image, but the th- they had begun to conceive of what God would be like. They'd begun to think about how they would have him be and what it would mean to serve or not to serve him. And so this is ultimately how idolatry begins. That's the first step. Now, it, in one sense, it's not a bronze statue, but it's still as deaf and dumb and as mute and is unable to act. And had it been got to the point of being created into a dumb uh, a bronze statue would fall over and wouldn't be able to get itself up so just because we're a few steps removed from the final product it doesn't mean that it's not happening and so and this is why it's the phrase i like to think of god as is helpful not because it's a good thing to do helpful as a kind of a exposing that idolatry to be what it is. So when any ever anyone says, I like to think of God as, or anything that with the same sentiment of that, they're conceiving an idea of what they think God could be, should be, what their God would be. They're creating him in their image and in doing so committing idolatry. Which is exactly the same what uh, what well, they do with the golden calf it's exactly the same as what Baal was you know all the idols of the Old Testament 
is just that idea of conceiving of what God is like and deciding what they would have him to be. You can even take this as far as saying, I like to think of God as not existing. You know, in the sense that you've basically decided what he's like. This is why we use the phrase, the God who makes himself known. Because, and, and you know, it's implied here. God has revealed himself so much so in creation, so much so that his divine attributes are there for all to see. And, you know, you can kind of say things like, oh, you know, it's so incredible and amazing. There has to be a God behind it. And yeah, that's true. But you can take it one step further. It's not that we're trying to persuade someone else that God exists, but they know he exists. And so hard it is for them to accept, to, to kind of suppress the truth that he doesn't exist, that in the end they kind of betray the fact that they do believe he exists. You know, by personifying human nature. Or, you know, who writes a film about an alien invasion where you, this alien comes down and you end up in this tirade of ranting with them where you're saying to them, leave us alone, we don't want to be told what to do. You know, it betrays the fact that ultimately they know God exists but don't want to worship him. They never concede that because they're suppressing the truth that they know. But ultimately, even there you see, they couldn't even go through with it and present God as God. But they had to make him a, an alien, as it were. So, yes, it is a little bit more subtle. It's not quite so obvious um, but when you start to explore it, everyone ends up fitting in that category of idol worshipper.